Oh, Father, at the mention of your name in these songs, I pray that our hearts would respond with wonder. As we have learned from your scripture last week, you are holy and awesome. And all your works proclaim this. Your works in judgment of the wicked. Your works in salvation of those who have been made righteous in Christ. Your works of creation and breathing into existence all that is in the material world. Your works of providence sustaining the same. The body systems that are necessary to sustain life. The ecosystems to sustain habitats. And the solar systems to sustain the balance in the heavens. All of these are the work of your sovereign hands. All of this is the design of the great architect. All of this majestically proclaims our God is worthy of praise. You are holy. You are awesome. Chief among your works, Lord, is the fact that you can save a wretch like me, a wretch like us. You stooped low, condescended, took on the form of a servant, was born, were born of a woman in Christ our Lord, born of a virgin, sovereignly conceived by the Holy Spirit, born in time, grew, became a man, proclaimed your truth, lived a perfect and sinless life, preached the kingdom, died on Calvary, was buried, you were raised again, and then you ascended before the Father, assuming rule and reign over your kingdom forever, and you continue to rule in your session, placing all your enemies under your feet. And we have surrendered to you when we repented of our sin and turned to Jesus Christ, and now we exalt you, and we declare that worthy is the Lamb who was slain for my sin. Thank you, Lord. As we turn to your scriptures, I pray that you would increase our delight in the revelation of Christ our Lord. And we pray according to Psalm 111 from last week that that delight would translate into praise, thanks, remembrance, and study. And in these that we might echo you, proclaim you, walk more fully and circumspectly in the precepts that you've ordained for us. We might be a better witness and testimony that the world would see through the light of your church the hope of Christ shines brightly even when the days are dark. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> what a gift and gracious opportunity the Lord has presented to us to worship together and also to consider His Scriptures and to submit to the authority of Christ represented in His Holy Word from the Minor Prophets to the New Testament. Let me turn you to a Minor Prophet this morning as our text will be in Amos chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. When I was young, I learned a song and I remember the Minor Prophets go like this. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Zechariah, Malachi, something like that. So Hosea, Joel, Amos, the third minor prophet. While you're looking for Amos, maybe you haven't discovered or uh, visited him in a while. Let me introduce this message. The aim of this morning's sermon is to feature the roaring truth of God's judgments calling for repentance. To feature the truth of the Lord that roars like a lion roars forth the judgments of God which call the world to repentance. The title of this morning's message comes from the context of the book of Amos, and it is this, When God Roars. What does it sound like when God roars? As a mighty lion, declaring the day of reckoning and his visitation and answering for sin must come. For a person or a people, Amos answers that question in the content and in the tone of his prophecy. And we pick up on this in Amos chapter 2. 
With your Bible open, out of reverence for our Holy Lord, would you stand for the reading of His Scriptures today? Stand and let us consider Amos 2, 6-11. through 11. Here is the Holy Word of God. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go in to the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of the Lord God in the, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yes, it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks, I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. It is not indeed so, is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Uh, permit me this morning an occasional sermon. Our typical approach in preaching from the pulpit here is sort of uh, systematic and through the Bible in a more linear fashion. And so we have several books that we're going through, the book of Genesis on our main uh, sermons through the week. The first Sunday of the month, we're going through First Peter. The second Sunday of the month, we reserve for a psalm. And this is the third Sunday of January. I'd like to take a brief departure from that pattern and preach to you what I call an occasional sermon, which is a term that was used you know, for years and years, which is a sermon hopefully that handles the text correctly, yet addresses some needs and issues that we may face right now in particular. Let us get a bit of background. Since we're landing in Amos this morning, who was he? Amos was a shepherd. He was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. He took care of animals and plants. We read this in chapter 7, verse 14. An unlikely vessel for this roaring prophecy. Before God called Amos to prophesy to the nation of Israel, he was an unlikely vessel for sure, an unlikely individual to bring forth the oracles of God's judgment. He was just a guy who was a farmer. Perhaps he was learned. It would seem that he was not a man of, you know, no intellectual means. Perhaps he was well aware of the circumstances which surrounded him. Nevertheless, in the terms of the day, he was kind of a blue-collar fellow, an unlikely vessel. However, this would not be the first time, and you may note this when you think of the vocation that Amos originally had, this would not be the first time or the last time when God would raise up an unlikely vessel to deliver his word. And he's raised up shepherds before, one thinks of David to proclaim his glory, and he raised up shepherds again. One thinks of recently when we referenced in the Christmas season the shepherds who proclaimed his glory at the event of his advent of his birth. God is not opposed to using shepherds, common folk, blue-collar people, the unlikely vessel to proclaim truth. And this came in an era where the seats of power and influence were thoroughly corrupt. God chose a man who is not of a magistrate, magistrate order, neither was he a priest, nor was he in a situation where he had a whole lot of influence and authority, so as far as the systems of man were concerned. 
Nevertheless, in speaking for God, he represented a greater authority still. When the word of God came prophetically through the mouth of Amos, the message was, kings must bow or else. Judges must bow or else. People in high finance, people in the priestly order must bow or else. Why? Because a shepherd was speaking to them? No, because God was speaking to them through a shepherd. Amos prophesied during a lull in international hostilities between the northern and southern kingdoms. So this is about 88, I'm sorry, BC 7800-ish uh, in there. And at this time, Israel had split into the northern and southern kingdom. They're on decent terms. And there was also relative peace with their neighbors. But this illusion of peace would prove to be the calm before the storm of God's judgment in just a few short years. Israel, the northern kingdom, would soon fall to the Assyrians in 50 years or so. That happened in 722 B.C. And again, Amos is, begins his ministry likely just after 800 B.C. So the northern kingdom will fall to Assyria in 722. And Judah, the southern kingdom, would not be far behind collapsing before Babylon in 586, just as the shepherd prophet Amos and others had warned. The words of Amos sound nothing like those of a herdsman as we read them. There's a sort of juxtaposition between who he was before his calling and who and what he sounded like when he gave these oracles or words of judgment. His oracles were the deafening sound. They were the deafening sound of the Lion of Judah roaring, uh, screaming, if you will, calling, echoing forth across the whole land, wrath upon God's judgment, justice, do the sin, wrath upon the systemic sins of an apostate. That means falling away from their once professed faith, an apostate people. Notice chapter 1, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, or verse, uh, and he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. This message that was going forth went forward from the fields where the shepherds were guarding sheep to the tops of the mountains, the prominent positions like Carmel, causing, whether you are occupying a high place or a lowly vocation, everyone to shudder. That was the context, the Lord roaring from Zion. The voice would not be ignored. The voice ought to send chills down your spine. You're a fool if you do not stop whatever you're doing. Drop your tools. Drop your ordinary, you know, uh, vocation, whatever you're, you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, and listen. Further context for this roaring uh, tone that the author and that the uh, prophet invokes is in chapter 3, verse 8. Verse 7 says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? There is a roaring sound. There is a tone of seriousness. There is a day of reckoning. The book of Amos is a roar from Yahweh himself through his vessel, through his servant Amos. The word of the Lord through the prophet calls the people's attention to his really speaking. And who is really speaking? Chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 lets us in behind the scenes a little more. Verse 12, Thus says, I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Prepare to meet your God reminds us of the book of Job. Before the Lord, or when the Lord introduces himself and speaks out of a whirlwind to Job, it's a roaring context, is it not? Think of the wind of a tornado in your ears. That's how the Lord appeared to Job. And the Lord told him something. 
in the spirit of this noise, in the spirit of this tone, he said, dress for action like a man. Snap uh, to attention. Look at me square in the eye and listen as I declare to you words of sobering authority. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. The prophet speaks in a similar way. Verse 13. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the world and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Who is speaking? Not a shepherd, not a herdsman, not a dresser of figs. Ultimately speaking, he's just a vessel. But the true voice that is coming through the prophet is the roar of the one who made Mount Carmel, who spread abroad the fields in which dwell the shepherds and their flocks. He is the one who spoke the universe into being by the word of his power, who said, let there be light. And there was light in the very beginning. Have you forgotten him, Israel? Have you forgotten that the fields in which you glean your harvest were created by the one who now roars and calls you to attention? Have you forgotten America, that the fields ripe unto harvest, even in some of our patriotic song, you know, the uh, amber cities gleam and the whatever fields wave of grain, whatever. I'm getting really, that's a really bad paraphrase, but I'm putting myself on the, on the spot. America the beautiful, for amber waves of grain and your cities gleam and whatnot. All of that language. Do these areas of our country, do they hear the roar of the Lord from Zion? And let me ask you another question. Are, do we have conditions in our land that are deserving of this kind of attention and this kind of wake-up call? Now, you might already be anticipating my answer. Of course it is yes. Don't you watch the news? We all do, don't we? Now, there's some scenes in different movies that might invoke some associations that will help you get a sense of the fear you ought to feel. I'm thinking of one, I have a vague memory of like a Narnia film where Aslan roars and everything is quiet and stands to attention and even like the natural processes are paralyzed at the sound of the lion's voice. That's something like the attitude and the response that is deserving of the revelation of the Lord in terms that the prophets gives. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. His words ring true for the plight of nations yet today, even our own. May we have ears to hear the lion's roar. Do you, do you hear the roar of the Lord? Where does the roar of the Lord come from? We are going to hear the roar this morning coming from His Word. Is the Word featured in your soul? Is the Lord roaring as you read His Scriptures? Does the breath of God come forth from the page, commanding your attention, reminding you that God is the sovereign, the creator and sustainer of all things, and everyone and every nation must bow before him or their knees will be broken? Do you hear that sound? It strikes me today that there are many factions who would seek to suppress the roar of the Lord. They throw masks on our face as almost a symbolic gesture to muzzle the voice of that which would declare them guilty, knowing full well they would have nowhere to hide if they would but open up to their eyes to the God who created them in the first place. You know, these days on the news we hear that people are being canceled, whole media platforms or individuals are losing their right and privilege to speak forth in the public square. What is behind this? Could it be that we live in a dark culture seeking to deafen, to plug their ears, to shove their fingers deep within the sockets of their ear orifices like a two-year-old does and scream at the top of their lungs nonsense so they don't hear the corrective, authoritative, ultimate truth of their parents? I believe that is the case. Now, shame on any would-be uh, teacher of the Bible, shame on any would-be pastor who would allow himself to be muzzled in such a time. 
pastors rise up, pray for me. I must be encouraged to do the same. If the gospel is not an essential service, I don't know what is. That was my message for last year. And it will be my message into this year too. The gospel is an essential service. The word of God must roar. They cannot suppress the truth of God's word and there remain hope for the future. A people, a nation, a consciousness of a society, an era, and a culture must open its ears to the God who is to be feared, lest they languish in their sin, lest they die in their self-deception, lest they uh, go on a bed of ease and opulence straight to a hellish end. And so when you think about it this way, the roar of the Lord is a grace and a mercy indeed. How does the Lord roar in Amos 2? He does so through his prosecuting attorney or lawyer, if you will. The judgments of the Lord many times, if not most, in the Old Testament take the form of a lawsuit. Yes, a lawsuit. The Lord um, invokes a standard, which is his law, and then brings a case against those who violate it. If you think of it this way, Amos is the prosecuting attorney representing the Lord, issuing a subpoena, a call to the courts of God, to the culture in which he lived, to see if they measure up. In his case against Israel, God makes the following points. Number one, he cites precedent. That is, his law applied before that demonstrates a pattern and that the people are measured by and held accountable to now. Number one, he cites precedent. Number two, he's bringing charges. He directly indicts them for the sins, the crimes that they have committed against his holy standard and his perfect law. And then number three, he makes an appeal to covenant. Thank God for covenant. This message, I hope, comes across as a stiff rebuke for those who need it. But this message in the book of Amos does not close without hope. In covenant, though by that measure we fall short, by that means we are redeemed. There is covenant hope for the people of God. If we hear the roar, repent of our sins, and the line of Judah becomes the lamb that was slain for you and me. And that is the big scope, the gospel message of Amos and the whole of Scripture. But let us consider first citing precedent. Amos 2 is preceded by a whole chapter where precedent is laid out. So, uh, kids, you want to play your favorite game, the stop game? Yeah. All right, so I'll go over the rules for some new kids. I'm going to tell you what to listen for. When you hear it, you tell me stop, okay? Here's what you're going to listen for. For three transgressions and for four. Got it? Oh, yeah, very good. So there's a device. This is kind of a formula that God uses in judgment language. So that's what you're listening for. I'm going to begin to read. If you hear it, say stop. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Not quite yet. I'm going to jump in the gun a little offsides there to use a sports analogy as I want to do. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Yeah. So you guys got it? For three transgressions and for four. So you, you identified the first one. Um, we continue. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza. Yeah, you're getting how many we have so far? That's correct. I will not revoke punishment because they carried into exile a whole people. Verse 9. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre. And for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom. How many so far, kids? Three, three precedents. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom... And for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword. Verse 13, thus says the Lord, For three transgressions 
Ah, of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. Chapter 2, verse 1, thus says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, very good, and for four. How many do we have so far? Six. I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Verse 4, same chapter. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah. Very good. What number is that, guys? Seven. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah. It shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions ah, of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So we made it up to our text today. How many uh, did we count, guys? That's correct. Seven precedents and then the lawsuit against Israel in total. So what is this? What does the author illustrate? What does the prophet illustrate in this action by this phrase, this device? It's a covenant lawsuit that is citing prior precedent to show that God has a pattern of judging people for the kinds of sins that Israel themselves are guilty of. That is to say, Israel is the latest offender in a long train of abuses. If Moab sinned in a similar manner and didn't get away with it, do you think you will, Israel? If Edom and the Ammonites, you might remember those names, the troubled legacy of Lot, if they sinned with a high hand against the Lord and he brought fire from heaven and so forth, do you not think you'll get away with it? Or do you think you will? And Tyre and Gaza and Damascus and so forth. That's the idea. Who's ever been to a water park? A lot of questions for the kids today. Okay, so you guys know that huge bucket that's overhead and it takes about 15 minutes and then what happens? You hear ding, 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 ding. Then what happens? It dumps, yes. So this is an analogy for the use of this device. For three transgressions and for four. So think of it, sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll put a pause on the game for now. But think of this picture of a bucket being filled with water. For one transgression, for two transgressions, for three transgressions, ding, 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 ding. For four transgressions, the bucket dumps. And some of you guys are just foolish enough to stand underneath it. But if that bucket was the wrath and the judgments of God, woe to anyone that stood underneath it. And this is the effect of this language. For three transgressions and for four, ding, 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 ding. And then there comes a cap. Yes, the straw that broke the camel's back. There is a fullness, if you will, of the wickedness. And at that time, the Lord alone knows what it is, the bucket of his wrath dumps upon those who deserve it. How should this make us feel? We live in an era where we need to listen. And if the Lord is roaring for us to repent, we need to hear that ding, ding, ding of the bucket, if you will, before we are washed away, before we are destroyed in the judgments of God. That would be the application. That would be the context. Exhibit A, the testimony of God's reckoning and circumstances warranting judgment, historically and internationally. Now, some too smart for their own good theologians will tell you, well, these things that we're reading out of Amos, they don't really apply to America. You see, we're not a theocratic union the way they were, and so on and so forth. And that's usually an escape clause, an excuse clause, to get out of the abiding truth that is there. And that abiding truth is this. Every nation must bow to the lordship of Jesus Christ or else. And whether you're Israel, Gaza, 
whether you're Damascus or whether you're the Ammonites or Edom, uh, do these sound like, you know, the theocratic Israel to you? No. And so why are they listed? They are listed in part to show that there is no one who lies outside the authority of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, his reign and rule. So when we go forth to make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that God commanded them, we teach them to listen for the roar of the Lord in their culture. The lion that cries out that their sin is worthy of judgment. And there's three and then four and then the judgment comes. Repent while there remains today. Because there is a sovereign who rules over the nations. His name is Jesus Christ. He does so with a scepter in his hand as strong as iron. And nations are but earthenware before that rod. And as Psalm 2 and Revelation in fulfillment language picture, he will dash the potter's vessel into so many shards, as Isaiah tells us, you won't even have a piece big enough to dip water out of when he's done. And the only escape is to hear the roar of the Lion of Judah, that he might be your lamb, and you would trust that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ will deliver you from the coming judgment. The storm, this is a quote from a commentary read, Ellicott's, I believe, quote, the storm of divine threatening, which had swept over the whole political horizon, gathers at last over Israel. Citing all these precedents, building this cumulative case, three transgressions and for four, you should feel the sense of suspense, the bucket of God's wrath is about to dump, hear the roar of the Lion of Judah and repent. Transgressions and corresponding judgments set the stage for proclamation against Judah and Israel. Now, contrasts of lesser consequence, uh, lacking the particular covenant strictures of Israel, were also worthy of judgment. In other words, even pagans have warranted the judgments of God, the language being, or the implication being, how much more ought you fear the Lord? Are we privileged as a people? Does that principle apply to us? When we sin as Americans, as our culture continues to show signs of decay, do we do so against and despising a more godly heritage than other nations historically? Yes, I believe that is unequivocally the case, even in our own history. Thus, the principle applies. If God brought judgment and reckoning on Edom, who had so much less revelation and godly heritage than you, O Israel, how much greater is the Lion of Judah to be feared in your case, who have that much less excuse? So it is with us. This is the national witness. This is the cumulative case. And then there's listed signal violations. What were the kinds of sins, the violations against God's law, that earned these prior nations in, the, in, this pre, in these precedent-setting judgments the wrath of the Lord poured out? Where they were just to list a few. Cruel and unusual punishment exiling other people, covenant betrayal of allies, abuse of power, abuse of the sword, violence against mothers and the unborn, and uh, waging war on the womb, lawless vengeance, and in the case of uh, Israel, or in the case of Judah, despising the law of Israel, which is a great summary for all the rest. Cumulative case, this national witness, the signal violations, they all introduce the covenant lawsuit by saying there is precedent both of the principle that is violated and the power of God to do something about it, so you better listen to the lion's roar. In his case, in his lawsuit against Israel, God is citing precedent. Number two, he's bringing charges. In verses six and following now, he uh, holds them accountable. He issues an indictment directly on those in Israel. Thus says the Lord, 
For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Now, that is some strange language, and perhaps if you were to describe what's wrong with America, you wouldn't choose those same words. But let me tell you, the concepts and their parallels are striking, especially when you look more closely at this poetic and prophetic language and realize the following. Here's four ways to summarize these charges. Number one, perverting justice. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes, they trample the head of the poor and so forth, those who have the keys to power, if you will, those who bear the sword, magistrates, and those in authority and influence, they are partial. That means they don't use equal standards. The value of life is not according to God's word. They're opportunists and they use their leverage for personal gain. This is a perversion of justice. And now we see the parallels, don't we? Is there a perversion of justice in our day? Secondly, exploiting or abusing the vulnerable. They trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. In fact, they sell the vulnerable for a pair of sandals. You see the principle illustrated here? Exploiting and abusing the vulnerable. You can judge the health of a society by how they treat the least among them by how they treat the, those who are least capable of defending themselves. And as I, am often, uh, as I have often said through the years, America is guilty, especially when we consider that those who are most vulnerable are in the womb. They have no voice, they have no strength to speak on their own behalf, to speak up for themselves or to defend themselves. So in the case of abortion, legal on demand, and in the case of every willful decision to take the life of the little ones on the inside, just like prior pagan nations did, but in our nation under the sanction of law, thus Psalm 94 indicting us further, framing injustice by statute, we are guilty of charge number two, exploiting and abusing the vulnerable. Thirdly, flaunting immorality. A man and his father go into the same girl and so that my holy name is profaned. One thinks of prostitution and of incest in this case, and historically that would have been the, you know, a common practice. The pagans of that, they were cult prostitutes. So the worship had been so profaned, and the morals had been so uh, eroded, that cult prostitution was commonplace among the people. Flagrant immorality. And more than just the kind of immorality that you're ashamed of and you keep in the closet, the kind of immorality you practice out in the open and celebrate as a virtue. Is there anything the Bible tells us not to do in America today that we celebrate as a virtue now? Well, sexual ethics is one of those categories, to be sure. It was once thought of a shameful thing if you were to redefine God's terms of the created order and pretend that a man and a man could have a legitimate marriage or romantic relationship or a woman or woman. Or now there's, uh, uh, you know, whoever knows how many make-believe made up out of whole cloth, absolutely absurd, self-incriminating and gen genders. You need a whole encyclopedia that changes every day even to figure out what the confusing morass of public defiance and whole-scale rebellion that this culture endorses when it comes to even understanding who we are, a boy, a girl, a man, a woman, and so on and so forth. But are these things things that we're ashamed of and hide in a corner? Or are they flagrant examples of our immorality? 
They are, are they not? We're flaunting them. We're celebrating them as a virtue. That which God says should not be entertained, we do out in the open, pride, with pride marches in our streets. That which should be shameful and condemned by the culture and the law and the understandings of the ethics and the morals of the people. No, now it's become a routine thing that one would go to a house of worship and partake in cult prostitution. After all, our neighbors do it, and they're pretty well off, and I kind of like the way that there's, uh, you know, culture is organized, so I'm going to adopt some of their practices. In so doing, they're guilty of charge number three, not just perverting justice, not just exploiting the vulnerable, but flaunting their immorality. And of course, part and parcel of this is the desecration of worship. They lay themselves down beside every altar, on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Now, there is a desecration of worship that is listed here, and it requires a little background. Since this point is very central to the text, and I want to uh, expand on it later, would you turn with me to Exodus 22? There's a reference to God's law here when it comes to clothing or the garments of the poor that is very instructive. Exodus 22. Now, in the book of Exodus, God lays out his law, the major Ten Commandments, and the rest of the case law, expanding and applying And in this context, we have these instructions as to a neighbor's cloak in verse 26 of Exodus 22. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. What could be illustrated here? Well, this cloak, this garment, represented the livelihood of the least among them. Remember, we talked about the vulnerable. These would be the poorer classes, not poorer as a result of their laziness, but instead, in God's providence, have less means than those who are in places of hierarchy, privilege, and authority. This is the livelihood that was represented. It was an expensive garment. It was something that provided shelter, and it could be used as pledge for a loan. A promise to pay back a loan, you could give, you know, theoretically, your garment. However, since this was so important to keeping the warm, keeping warm and provided the shelter and represented the livelihood of that individual, it was against the law for somebody to hold that pledge overnight. And the Lord was so serious about this law that he said if anyone breaks this and the man who is shivering in the cold, poor, exploited, vulnerable, because the, uh, the, the person in power did not fear the Lord, did not honor his law, did not hear the roar of his commandments and obey, if that poor person cries out for the Lord, the Lord will hear and answer and bring judgment on the exploiter. And that is happening in the context of Amos. The poor, from time to time, no doubt, have been crying out, perhaps Amos himself, the shepherds, the lowly, the people who had been the victim of the wickedness of the culture. And can you relate to this in some regard? I hope you can. Uh, you may not be in a position of influence or authority, but perhaps you have felt the marginalization and the pressure of a wicked culture who is exploiting godliness and seeking to pressure and to persecute those who would tell them otherwise. If you fall into that category, Amos has a word for you. Cry out to the Lord. Cry out by reading his indictment, his instructions, and gain courage by the covenant lawsuit that the Lord will issue when the sins are three and then four, and the bucket of his wrath begins to ring with that alarm and then dumps out on a culture. And God can answer your prayer in this way, by bringing down these illicit practices that so violate his terms. Now, 
What was this garment? As we said, representing livelihood, it was the sum and security of the labor of that individual. A hardworking person puts all his effort in, in, day in, day out. He assembles something of a fortune. He adds it to a dowry. He scrapes. He finds extra work. And he finally is able to assemble a garment that allows him to have some provision to endure the cold nights and to have something of a standing in the community. That garment represents the sum and security of his labor. The Bible is absolutely clear. A society that does not respect private property, no matter if the person cannot defend their own private property, is a society that is doomed. Is a society that is doomed. You cannot take advantage of private property for personal gain, for public policy, or in a false appeal to compassion. To do so is to take the sum and security of people's labors and to exploit it for the social reconstruction whims of the powerful class. This is happening in our state, in our nation today. There are arbitrary measures, and a fear of a pandemic has, issued, uh, has motivated magistrates to shut down certain businesses. You should not do something like that. You should hear the roar of the Lion of Judah. You should be afraid to deny somebody the sum and the uh, uh, insecurity of their labor. If by an illegitimate policy that does not take into account the dignity of the individual having the opportunity to pursue as a good steward a livelihood for himself, if you do not take that seriously, you can come under the indictment of a sovereign God who will bring judgment on a culture that does not take his scripture seriously. And these principles apply. Think about the policies that have so wantonly violated these principles that we're pursuing right now. It's so insane, it's so perverse, we might as well name the acts that are passed by Congress right now according to the following. So I have a suggestion uh, for you. I'm going to propose an act. You present, pretend like you're a legislator. You're a senator, you're a House member, and so forth. I'm going to give you an act. My act is called Borrowing Against Future Labor of Americans' Productive Class Through Deficit Spending Justified on the Basis of Destroying Businesses and Income Through COVID Restrictions uh, That, uh, excuse me, uh, denying them stewardship-based opportunities in pursuit of their well-being and livelihood and conscripting them into slavery as a share of their future labor as now claimed as collateral pledge for a loan signed without their consent, rendering them dependent on stolen money in the meantime. Would you vote for that act? Well, that's a bunch of language there. But I think if you ex expanded on each phrase and looked at the things that we're doing right now as a people, you would see that economics and righteousness are invariably tied together. Someone's going to listen to this sermon and think, oh, that uh, pastor's really politicizing. Let me make an appeal to that, and let me, um, you know, anticipate that objection. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, where a man's treasure is, there his heart will be also. And when Jesus cleared out the uh, temple in an act of judgment, a passage which we read this morning, Hosanna to the son of David, what's the very next thing he does? He clears the temple out of money changers and specifically as reference those who are exploiting the poor. How do I know? Because the pigeon sellers were kicked out on their heel. Pigeons were the sacrifices the poor had to have, had to resort to because they couldn't afford any better. What Jesus was doing is in, part, uh, in part was bringing judgment upon those who showed by their treasure where their heart was. They were exploiting those 
who couldn't defend themselves because their treasure was in gaining more money, even if it meant breaking God's law. Gaining more money, even if it meant breaking God's law. What does Jesus go on to say in Matthew 6? You can't serve two masters. You'll either serve God or you will serve money. So which is Lord of which? Is God Lord of, of economics in America or is economic futures and hopes God in America? Well, I'll let you listen to the news and judge for yourself if we're not worthy of judgment. These are the charges. Perverting justice, exploiting and abusing the vulnerable, flaunting immorality, and desecrating worship. And in the finally, in this indictment section, those garments were used in quote-unquote worship situations. It's a stolen garment. It's held as pledge overnight. It's being laid down in a place that was supposed to be holy. And acts of immorality are committed upon it. And instead of bringing a sacrifice out of their own store, they're purchasing wine, presumably from the bribes that they had collected, and they were drinking it and getting drunk. This is a desecration of worship. Do not let the policies of a world gone to seed, under the judgment of God, or at least deserving of the same, do not let the false claims and the false rules of a wicked culture desecrate what is holy and true. It breaks my heart that churches close their doors. It breaks my heart that we receded into the background. In times such as ours, the gospel needs to be more prominent. Wake up, hear the roar, announce the sound, and otherwise we desecrate worship. So you can tell a lot about a culture by what they, uh, by what they set apart as sacred and holy. There will always be something set apart as sacred and holy. I do not endorse for a minute the actions, revolution, I consider revolutionary actions that were taken by a few who used violence to uh, break and, uh, you know, property barriers and siege the Capitol the other day. But I'll tell you what, in the providence of God, it sure did illustrate a few things. And one of the things it illustrated is what this culture considers sacred. In mere moments, minutes, hours after that siege happened, the uh, statist worshipers, they went back to their places and their podiums and their press conferences and they said, oh, they have desecrated the sacred temple of democracy whatever his name is, Senate my, uh, Minority Leader, and so forth, right? The desecrated, the sacred temples of democracy. Oh, really? Sacred? Really? Temple? Really? You know what you have just done, O lawmaker? You have illustrated to us that you are an idolater. There is nothing sacred that should be revered about hope in status, self-important politicians who violate God's law and hate him all day long and seek to suppress the roaring voice of the Lion of Judah in order to set up for themselves a country in their own wicked image. There's nothing sacred about that. And don't get me wrong, on the right side of the aisle too, if we place our faith in chariots and horses, and if we want to make those halls and those great marble columns quote-unquote sacred again, we could be guilty of the same. We're just advocating for a different idol. What do we advocate for? That the Lion of Judah, that his roar would go forth and that nations would bow and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And the only way to make the halls of Congress sacred again is if Jesus is Lord, is on the top of the documents, the laws that are passed, and the thoughts in their, in their heart, and the intentions of their policies, and the direction of their purposes and ambitions. And until such time, that is a place that is wicked. And we watched Dagon fall this week. That's what I think. You know, uh, Dagon was a false god set up in a false temple. And the Lord's presence went in and destroyed it. And we saw for a mere moment, you know, people cowering under death, whimpering, fearing for their lives and so forth. Dagon was broken. But the next, oh, they put that Dagon together really fast, didn't they? Did they repent, though, for their sins? 
Did they realize that that capital siege and irresponsible action by a hyperzealot few was just a small taste of the reckoning when that bucket of God's judgment dumps across this whole nation and calls us to account for our sins? Did, that, did they even realize that? Was there anybody in Congress who called people to repent and say, you know, we really deserve to have our borders breached because we have violated God's law and we are ripe for judgment and sometimes he raises up a wicked tool to bring it? Did anybody say that? No. Everybody rushed to the podiums again and to the microphones to celebrate how much awesome, incredible unity we're going to have. Unity in what banner? The same wickedness that preceded that act? Yes. So let us pray that the roar of the Lord would be heard by those who yet occupy these temples and these false idols and these high places, that the charges of the Lord in perverting justice and exploiting the vulnerable and flaunting immorality and desecrating worship would be heard in the ears such that they bring repentance and repair. There's an appeal to covenant in closing this morning. We're considering the case, the lawsuit against Israel. God has cited precedent. He has brought charges. And now he makes an appeal to covenant in closing. Verse 10, he says, Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. In other words, the Amorites, well, it says, by the way, in Genesis 15, 13 through 16, it was a prophecy to Abraham. And he said, your people are going to be slaves for 400 some years. But after the fullness of the Amorites is complete, after the bucket of God's wrath over the Amorites reaches full and dumps out, you will occupy the land, you will defeat them, and you will escape the tyranny of Egypt all in the same act. And this happened. The Lord brought them into the land of Egypt and led them 40 years in the wilderness. Furthermore, verse 11, I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. In other words, in this appeal to covenant, which we don't have a lot of time to consider, God is referencing the land inheritance that was given to them because and by means of a God who judged the wicked before them. And now as they were entertaining wickedness in their midst, they were doubly guilty. The Amorites, they didn't have as much light, as we said before, as the Israelites did. Nor had they been delivered from the hands of a 400-year tyrant unto a gift of grace, the promised land. How much more guilty is a people who has this inheritance, who have experienced the sovereign deliverance of the Lord? Take seriously this admonition, saints. We have been given a land and inheritance. We have been given glory eternal. How much more boldness should we have declaring the virtues and the truth and the judgments of God, knowing that our inheritance is secure? And how do we betray the Lord when we forget that he has given us by his grace such awesome, incredible, enduring promises, and we cower in fear when someone wants to pick a fight with the Lion of Judah? Can anyone pick a fight with the Lion of Judah and win? No. Listen for the roar, echo it, get back out there and declare that he is sovereign. He delivered you once from Egypt, the greatest empire the world had known. He delivered you unto the promised land. All you had was trumpets and walls fell. Remember what God has done. Remember Psalm 111? If you consider the works of the Lord and consider your own salvation, believer, what kind of response ought it to lead to? When the Lord restores to you the joy of your salvation that we sang about this morning, well, how should we respond? Praise, thanks, study, and remembrance. Great application for this song, or for, this, uh, for that song and then for this message. Lord, give us a delight in the joy of our salvation. Remind us of our inheritance in the gospel. And let that move us to praise your name among the nations. To be thankful to you as the one who assures us our hope for the future. To remember what you have done and not forget that the Lion of Judah reigns. And to study 
and to make ourselves good Berean students so that we are ready to take on the burden of justice if it completely falls apart in this land. Can you adjudicate a court case? Well, I'll tell you, you have in front of you a textbook that will teach you how. Finally, cloaks and worship. You know, there's a fulfillment and a parallel and a contrast of the desecrating of worship by misusing garments. And you might have already drawn the connection, but it goes back to our worship text. You know, there is but one leader who is worthy of sitting upon a garment which represents the sum and security of a person's labors. You know, there is but one leader, one king, who is worthy to walk across the garments which represent the total fortunes of, of, of people upon a foal, the coal, or, or a, a colt, the foal of a donkey? And that is Jesus Christ. You may not have realized, I know I've touched upon it briefly in messages past, but it's a pretty significant moment when those garments were laid out because these garments represented the sole livelihood of those people. You talk about an act of worship. What these, those people were doing was laying down their fortunes and their sacred honor, if you will, as a path, a red carpet, for the king of kings to walk upon. Any other king would be guilty of God's judgment for doing that thing. No, your animal's not going to poop on the, on the, clothes, on the clothes of, of the poor. That is everything that's theirs. But in the case of Jesus Christ, he is the one sovereign who is worthy of laying down all your life, all your fortunes, all your sacred honor, and trusting in him with all your sum and security. No one else is worthy of trusting with your sum and your security. No one else. And so to speak, spiritually speaking, do not let them take your garment, if you will. What I mean by that is do not trust your sum and security and your labor. Now, there are times when we must, you know, endure under protest and persecution and so forth. But do not grant the kind of authority to a false imposter that would say, because I hold out hope for the future, I really have the right to break God's law in this category, that category. Hopefully, you grasp the application. Now, this Jesus is striking to me. This Jesus who sat upon, was enthroned upon the whole scale laying down of people's livelihood. In just hours, his clothing would be ripped off of him and his garments would be gambled away by his abusers. In this act, they were breaking the law of God by holding Jesus' garment, not just as pledge overnight, but ripping it off an innocent man, a man of meager means by worldly standards, so to speak, and taking that garment and casting lots for it and gambling over it. You see, Jesus had a garment too. Jesus had a cloak too. And the people treated that garment in such a cavalier way that it is a picture of the whole-scale rebellious disregard for God's law in the extreme. Even that has significance. But I'm here to tell you, saints, that act was necessary in order to justify those who stole and gambled for his garment in the first place. And there were people like that. That act of self-giving, that act of being stripped of his dignity, that act of sacrifice on the cross was the Lion of Judah becoming a lamb and enduring the sin of the world that the world, if they trust in him, might be free. So, violating the pledge of garments in Amos, you know, that language ties right in, not only to our day, but right into the gospel itself. And so let us close this message asking ourselves, 
that where is your pledge and security? Have you subcontracted it out and does someone else own your garment? Is your pledge and security in the Lord? Have you laid down your sacred honor, your hope for the future on Jesus Christ, under Jesus Christ? He was the one who lost all those things that you might be healed and free, set free of your sin and that he might be the bread of life, the living water, the tree of fruit for the healing of the nations who would but trust in him. Let us close in prayer. Dear Lord, I trust, insofar as your word has been rightly handled this day, we have heard you roar. If there is anyone in the sound of this message that feels the pangs of guilt, knowing they have fallen short of the standard of your righteousness, but does not have the assurance that their sins are atoned for, I pray that they would look to Christ, crucified. And they would also look to Christ, risen and ascended, resurrected, Savior and Lord, that they might trust in him, that his blood shed, purchase their sins, and that his rule and reign is the only place to invest their security. Lord, for others in this culture who are deaf and blind and have not opened their ears to the truth of God's judgments worthy of those who desecrate, profane the holy, who take lightly the law of God and pretend to be a law unto themselves, I pray that the church would rise to the occasion with a mighty roar. Not our own ideas, our own opinions, our own words, or anything like that, but echoing the words of Scripture. We may feel unqualified, the least uh, worthy of this task. After all, Amos was a shepherd. But you have given us your word, you have given us your scripture, so I pray that we would be faithful in the opportunities that you grant to tell the truth to others, that they might repent and believe. We pray for eyes to be opened, for hearts to be resurrected, for the dead spiritually to be raised, and for you to add to your ranks in these times such as ours so that the light of Jesus Christ might shine all the brighter as churches grow in faithfulness, obedience to Christ our Lord and King, trusting Him with all that we are. In His name we pray. Amen.